All right, well, good morning, Redemption. My name is Josh Butler, uh, one of the pastors here. I'm excited to dive into God's Word with you today. If you, uh, have a, if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and the ushers would love to bring one for you. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Daniel 3 today, so feel free to turn there. All right, well, we live in a polarized culture, right? Uh, left and right, conservative, progressive, Fox News, CNN, uh, and difference is okay, but increasingly, we've moved from difference to division, where the rhetoric has become increasingly vitriolic and angry. In fact, I saw a recent study. This is a graph showing a hatred, partisan hatred in America. If we can pull up that slide. Showing how in about 1980, uh, they've been doing research surveys on this and finding that one party hating the other party was at about 12% for both parties. And today, it's up at around 50%. Which means half folks hate the other half, right? Which is interesting for us as the body of Christ, going, how do we live faithfully in our polarized culture, in this polarized climate? We're in a series on the book of Daniel called Exiles, where every week we're walking through and seeing these different idols or ideologies that were present back then and that are still with us today, and going, how do we live faithfully in the midst of these? And so we've been looking at things like consumerism and hedonism and individualism, and this morning we have the pleasure of looking at nationalism. Everybody's favorite topic. <laughs> so pray for me. <laughs> pray for my inbox in the morning. <laughs> uh, no, but I went into this kind of going, all right, God, how do I do this without offending every, anyone? And, and as I got into the passage and reflect, I felt like God was saying, no, how do you do this and offend everyone? <laughs> like, in our moment today, there may be a place that all of us actually need to be touched. And I want to open to you by just going, uh, we are... Uh, as, as a diverse community, we believe that the body of Christ is a diverse community. And that's not only ethnically, socioeconomically, age, that's also politically. We're going to come with different perspectives that are shaped by our experience, our backdrop, all that. And so uh, we, if you are left or right, conservative, progressive, wherever you're coming, you are welcome. I want to say from the outset, you are welcome. And our goal today is to be prophetic but not partisan. That's right. Uh, and yet we do want to prophetically go, how do we as a community, uh, a diverse community, ideologically even, how do we live faithfully together in the midst of our polarized culture? And a good first caveat before we jump into the passage, I think, is to go, what do we mean by nationalism? Because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and often we have kind of an ambiguous uh, sense of, of what it, it, different people use the term different ways. So first off, what we don't mean, uh, we don't mean by nationalism today is patriotism, right? Like patriotism is a good thing. It's good to love your country, to honor your country, to serve your country. So we're not saying that that's bad. Also don't mean like economically, right? Like in the uh, economic kind of discourse today, there's questions about like nationalism versus globalism, where the context is like uh, some would argue like, man, we need to build a strong country so that we don't kind of get sucked into the global market and trampled. And there's, there's a, a healthy debate to be had there. That's not, we're not trying to plant a flag in that debate, right? Uh, but what we do mean is when we take our nation and we elevate it over God. Right? When we take our country and we elevate it over God, because as we start to see in a, as a pattern in this series, every week we're seeing that usually the ism, it, it's something good that we've taken and elevated over God. Last week, Ricardo looked at consumerism and goes, being a consumer is a good thing. We were made to consume. If you don't eat, you die, right? Yet the ism becomes when we take something good that God has given and made for us and we elevate it and make it a priority over God. So the question this morning is, what, what is the danger when we elevate our country or our nation over God? Or perhaps even more, more poignantly in our context today, what happens when we elevate our vision for our country over God? Our competing visions for our country over God. And what does it mean 
to put God first in this context. So, the title for the sermon this morning is Where is Your Allegiance? Tell your neighbor it's about to get interesting. <laughs> All right, well, here we go. We're in Daniel 3, so verses 1 to 7. Opens, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So 60 cubits is about 90 feet, right? Like 10-story building thing. If you've seen the Carvana building out off 202, right? That's a 90-foot building. Big back in the day, right? Um, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. There's some Tower of Babel images and, and, and backdrop resonance there, right? So he sets it up on the plains of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials, he wants, he's making a point, right? Like, everybody's there. Uh, we don't talk about satraps every day, but those are basically like every branch of government, right? The political, the economic, the judicial, the administrative, they're all there, and there's seven of them, which is a Hebrew way of saying everything, right? Everyone. So they're all there. Uh, and they're gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and this guy likes lists, <laughs> every kind of music. Uh, again, there's seven things listed there, right? Since like the whole big band is there. They're ready to play. When the music plays, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, hark, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. All right. Well, first thing we see here is that the king says, bow or burn. Bow or burn. The king tells everyone, bow down to this golden image that I've made, or I'm going to burn you in the fire. And the bigger picture here is that the king is setting himself up as God. We see that the king makes an image, and he sets it up at the center of his kingdom to represent his rule. And the vision is that people would come and worship as well. The king is setting himself up as God. This phrase, uh, set up, you may have heard that over and over. It shows up eight times. It's a theme. It's a way of the author saying, hey, pay attention to this. He's setting up this image to represent his rule. And two times it says he made this in his image. He made, the, he made this image. And that should cast some echoes for us. This is a parody of Genesis 1. Because God is a king who has made an image of himself, an image of God, and he has placed it in the center of his kingdom of creation in order to reflect and represent his rule into the world. Only for God, his image is us. And God sets up his image, us, in order that we might reflect his love and service and care for our community and building up culture and all, all the different things that God has in mind for us. But Nebuchadnezzar has this image, and he creates an idol. And one of the reasons that idols are such a problem in the Bible, one of the reasons we're commanded not to make images is because God's already made an image. He's made you and I to reflect his reign. And what we find is that often when people start making idols, it leads to dehumanizing practices towards others. When we start elevating things over God, 
it can lead us to treat others not the way that they were made to be treated. And it's interesting, too, that uh, ancient scholars of the, of the near ancient Near East, they'd say one of the most powerful pieces about the image of God in Genesis is that it's what they call democratized the image. Because back at this time, everyone believed only the king was made in the, the image. But the Genesis narrative says, no, each and every human being, man and woman, slave and free, all bear the dignity of being made in God's image and being called to reflect the life of God and who God is into the world. All right, so the king is setting up this image, and is this an image of the king himself or is it an image of God? There's some debate, but either way, what scholars would kind of agree is that this is an image of Babylon's identity. It's meant to reflect the identity of the empire. And the Nebuchadnezzar, he was like the Napoleon of the ancient world, right? And so he conquered and amassed this great civilization, and Babylon had a lot of strengths, uh, but there was this challenge of how do you unify this diverse group of people that you've conquered? And it becomes this image, this symbol of Babylon's identity that everyone is expected to pay homage to. And so this is a political scene. You saw every branch of government is represented. The king's goal is to unify the nation after conquest to establish a common identity. In the words of one scholar, John F. Walvoord, he said, this is an expression, the scene and the, the ceremony, it's an expression of political solidarity. It was, in effect, a saluting of the flag. This is not only a political scene, it's also a worship scene. We see a scene where every nation, tribe, and tongue, we're told, like representatives from every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered, and when the music plays, like the big band's there, and when, when all the music part starts, uh, every nation, tribe, and tongue um, are to bow before the image of the God. And this sounds a lot like scenes we see in the Bible. You think of Revelation where uh, every nation, tribe, and tongue is gathered uh, to bow before the one true God in worship. And as the angels and the heralds proclaim at the, uh, uh, glory and honor to God and the music plays and everyone worships and gives honor to God. This is not only a political scene, it's a worship scene where the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has set himself up over and against God. Not only has he set himself, he set Babylon and its identity over and against God. The king exalts the nation over God. Now here is the problem. You can honor your nation, but don't worship your nation. You can honor your nation, but don't worship your nation. We see that uh, in scripture that honoring your country is good. Peter tells us, fear God and honor the king. Old in 1 Peter 2.17. Uh, we are to love our family, our neighborhood, our country, the world. And there is kind of this principle of proximity. Like you tend to have a greater responsibility towards those who are closer to you. So I, I, I'm called to love my neighborhood, but my family is kind of, I've really got to have a responsibility to love and care for them. And similarly, we're called to love the world, but there is this identity we have with our country and those that we are kind of bound um, in proximity with, identity with. But the problem becomes the ism, once again. When that, uh, the, the issue here is taking something good that God's given us, our country, our nation, and making it ultimate. Taking the penultimate and making it ultimate. Taking number two and making it number one. Taking God as king and displacing him ultimately with our own country or our vision for our country as a greater priority. So the problem of war worship is making the penultimate ultimate. 
And I think there are two ways that this can tend to show up today. Uh, what I want to call like uh, one, two dangers, two ways to show up. One is what I call like uh, the postures of God bless America and the other of God leave America. So we can throw the slide up here. Let me explain what I mean by this, right? Okay, so God bless America. Uh, this is not saying that we can't ask God to bless our country. That's fine. But what I'm talking about is a posture here where at times we can tend to start with our country or our ideology or where we're already at and just want to tack God's name on like a bumper sticker blessing, right? Like, God, hey, you just come behind our pre-existing agenda and give me uh, the life I want and the things we want. And we can use God as more of a motivational slogan than the king of the universe. And this can be more of a temptation, just we see often on uh, maybe, say, the right end of the political spectrum. But on the left end, I think the temptation is also is a God leave America, which is another way of displacing God. And on the one hand here... It's right and good that we would recognize when we live in a diverse society, there are people of different beliefs, different faiths, different backgrounds, and so we don't want to impose through coercion. Uh, and so there, there, there's something right there. But the challenge for us as the body of Christ, as follower of Jesus goes, uh, the deception can be thinking that our society is going to be best if we remove God from public life of our world. And the reality is that life and flourishing were made by God to live before the face of God in and with his presence. And so both of these I would suggest become ways today that we can tend to displace God as ultimate. But the biblical vision is not so much God bless America or God leave America, but is rather America bless God. That we start with God and his kingdom, and whatever country we live in, whether we're in Kenya or in America or Brazil or China or whatever, that the body of Christ orders, we order our lives around God's kingdom, and we call all around to witness the beauty of who Christ is as king. And to order our lives around his reign. Right? America, bless God. I love the scene in Joshua 5. This is where Israel is just about to enter the promised land. And in Joshua 5, Joshua's out on the, uh, the field and he sees this angel, uh, the command, this man standing there, the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua asks him a question we probably all would ask. Hey, whose side are you on? Theirs or ours? Right? And I love the angel's response. The, uh, he says... Uh, verse 14, he says, are you for us or for our enemies, Joshua asked. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Joshua's kind of going, are you on our side or theirs? He goes, I'm on God's side. The question is, are you on mine, right? And I love, there's a scene, uh, Abraham Lincoln, there's a scene where a reporter came to ask him uh, in the Civil War going, hey, President Lincoln, do you believe that uh, God is on our side or the other side? And Abraham Lincoln's response, I love his response here, he said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And so the gospel calls us to a posture where we actually start with God. We place our agendas, place our identity, place who we are. We, we, we place that all before the throne of God and go, God, how do we bend our knee to you as king and order our lives, order our allegiances ultimately around your throne and let everything else, our commitment to our family, our commitment to our country, our commitment to all those things fall ultimately underneath and in line with you. And we talk about this, the, you know, America bless God, but it starts with us, the church blessing. Like we shouldn't be calling trying to call the culture to something that we're not doing ourselves. That we need to be a community, a church that blesses God, that puts him first and foremost. 
and orders our lives around his kingdom reign. In fact, I would suggest to you that the greatest political witness that we as a community might have is how we live as a community together. Actually becoming citizens of the kingdom in the midst of America, a colony of God's kingdom in the midst of the empires of our world. How we live together may be our greatest witness. All right, well, let's keep going in the passage here. Verse 16. Jump ahead to verse 16. Okay, so prior to this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow. Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, is furious with rage, and he gives them a second chance. So in verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love how calm, cool, and collected they are, right? No need to answer you. <laughs> uh, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, other garments. I love that. There are, it's already hot. Can I go in in my shorts and flip-flops? No, we're going to bundle you up in your pea coat and everything else. <laughs> their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. What I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are faithful in the fire. Right? Like they are faithful to the point of death, faithful to the point of flames, going, we're going to love our country, we're going to serve our country, we're going to honor. Even though they were a people who had been conquered, even though they were a people who had experienced oppression at the hand of Babylon, they were willing to serve at the heights of Babylon and honor and care for and serve. And yet when it came to moments or places or times when allegiance to Babylon meant violation of allegiance to God, they said, we're going with God, right? Like our, our loyalty is ultimately subservient to a higher loyalty to God. And when those two conflict, we go with God, right? They were faithful in the flames. They refused uh, the nationalism of Babylon, seeking to exalt itself and its identity over God. The problem, for the, the problem was that refusing to pledge allegiance to the symbol of Babylon's identity and power was seen as undermining national unity. Now, fortunately, we've moved on from this. We don't have anything similar today. <laughs> like, no, Josh. What are you saying? Like, Josh, we, we don't have a symbol of our national identity uh, that when the multitudes are gathered and the music plays, everyone must humble themselves towards, uh, show reverence to, and pledge allegiance to, right? We don't, we don't have that anymore today. And surely, Josh, no, if someone were not to, they would not be uh, pushed to the sidelines, banished from polite society, mocked and ridiculed, burned in the flames of public effigy. No, we don't have to say. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying, right? All I'm saying is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they were willing to believe in something, even if it meant sacrificing everything. <laughs> they pulled a Colin Kaepernick. They took, a, they took a knee, right? All right, 
And now some of you might be going, okay, Josh, you just went partisan, right? Okay, now let me nuance it and clarify it, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, Col and Colin Kaepernick are, are, the, are the exact same thing, right? There are some important differences. Like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their big deal is like going, in, in our conscience, we can't violate our conscience before God with what you're asking to do. Uh, Kaepernick, by his own admission profession, he says, hey, this isn't still about God. He, he's not saying this is a violation of my conscience. Saying, uh, I, I believe this is significant enough to undertake a proactive public protest. Now, whether you think that's right or wrong, there, there is some distinction. There's difference. But it does show us kind of some of the weight or the emotion or the energy behind the, the, the scene here in Daniel 3 of going, we still take national unity seriously. And when our society orders its life around things other than God, there can become points and moments of tension. And I introduced the topic here, and so I think it's, it's worth mentioning. When you, when you mention something uh, like the Kaepernick scenario, you can feel that it introduces a tension in the room, all right? And I think that can be a good case study for us of how do we live together as the body of Christ in areas of tension. And I believe, you know, on the one hand, we can see both sides. So on the protest side for Kaepernick and his supporters and others, uh, going, dude, I believe that the... They, they can be saying, like, we believe that the weight of injustice and inequality that black people in America still experience is significant enough and worthy enough of taking a dramatic action and step like this, right? You can see on the other side, with the pledge side, uh, people going, man, it feels like our nation is already fragmenting and tearing apart at the seams, the tribalization of our culture, and you're going to take one of the last remaining things we have that seems to unite us and use, use that, and you're going, man, that feels dishonorable to veterans and those who have given their lives for our country. And at that stage, that feels like a worthy conversation, right? That's nationally cultural. That feels like a worthy conversation. I think where things go south is when we begin to demonize each other, when difference becomes demonization, right? Problem when disagreement turns to demonization. And so it's one thing where each side tends to, in a lot of things in our culture today, like each side will go, hey, here's what we're for. But I think where it turns south is when each side begins to go, you're against what we're for, right? So one side can be going, well, you hate veterans. There's how, well, you hate black people. And that's where things tend to spiral south out of control quick. We see this in a lot of areas. I think even just recently, uh, the controversial, heated thing around the Kavanaugh nomination and hearings, where on the one side, you've got one side going, we believe, in, we believe women. You've got the other side going, we believe in innocent until proven guilty and, uh, you know, the justice, the justice system, that's it, and a presumption of innocence. Uh, and that's probably a good conversation to be had. But quickly it turns, well, you hate women. Well, you hate our justice system. You want to demolish, tear down our justice system. And things go south quickly when we begin to de demonize those who disagree with us. And it's one thing that when that happens in the culture, but I think as the body of Christ, we have to go, how does our allegiance to Jesus as king shape how we treat one another within the family when we disagree? I believe Jesus calls us, when he says, love your enemy and turn the other cheek, that applies just as much as Facebook as it does in conversation, right? Like, slander on Twitter is still slander. So how we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus who love him in the midst of the heated tension uh, of our culture in this climate can, in the long run, I think, be a strong witness. But it also provokes the question, um, what, what do we stand for? If we see that nationalism is not just worship of the nation, but it can also be worship of your particular vision for the nation. And we have these two competing visions, the, the red version and the blue version, right? These competing visions for the nation today. How do we, as followers of Jesus, stand? What do we stand for? 
Well, I think it's interesting today. I believe that faithful presence today will cross party lines. Faithful presence today will cross party lines. Here's what I mean. There's a scholar, uh, Larry Hurtado, a historian of the early church. One of the things he asks is, what was it about the early church that caused, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of antagonism, uh, what was it that caused this movement to grow? And he highlights five distinctive marks of the early church, five marks of the early church that he sees as significant historically to the growth and expansion of the church. Uh, the first one is multi-ethnic communities. So this is the first time the ancient world had seen a gathering of people from diverse backgrounds and all reconciled and living life together with one another at this level. It was shocking in that day. Second, he says generosity with the poor. The Christians were known for how much they loved and served and gave in a world with no social safety net, uh, where social services were extremely limited. Often the emperors were going, man, the church takes better care of our poor than we do. They were known for being generous with the poor. Third, he says, is forgiveness and enemy love. That in the midst of persecution and hostility, they blessed those who persecuted them. They forgave those who wronged them. There was non-retaliation towards those who might seek to harm them. There was a posture of forgiveness and enemy love. Fourth, he says, was pro-life with children. Because uh, infanticide, abortion was obviously a lot more dangerous back then, um, but infanticide... Uh, was huge. And so often babies, particularly girls, would be left in the local trash heaps. And the Christians were famous and well-known for going into the trash heaps and taking the children who had been abandoned or discarded and bringing them home, bringing them into their homes, their families, their communities, and raising them as their own. It was like an early adoption even. And five, points out, was uh, sex ethic and the family. That uh, in the Roman, it's often been said, I heard one historian put it, that uh, you know, the Romans were famous for being stingy with their money and generous with their sex. Right? And the Christians were famous for inverting that and being generous with their money and stingy with their sex. Right? And this picture where, for the Romans, sex was about self-gratification, like getting your needs met or whatever. And often uh, there was a sense of a power dynamic where those with more power uh, were seen as justified in using that against those uh, weaker in the social hierarchy. But the Christians, it became not about self-gratification, but about self-giving within the context of mutual commitment and of covenant love before God and the community. And that this became revolutionary and appealing, particularly to those who uh, were often abused or on the underside of the Roman sexual ethic. Right? All right, so we see all this, these five, and I love uh, Tim Keller makes the observation that if you live in a blue state, you're probably going to be more stoked on numbers one and two, right? If you live in a red state, you're probably going to be more stoked on numbers four and five, and nobody's really stoked on number three, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> and yet the mark of the church is that we would hold to all five, that as a community of witness, he, he makes the observation, he says, when we lose these, uh, the church must retain all five, or it will not be the church evangelizing the world, but the world evangelizing the church. I think part of faithful presence in our cultural moment, it's going to cross party lines. It's going to challenge certain visions for our nation and directions things are going. But it's a vision that we actually live into together, not just with the words we speak, but with the lives that we live here together as a community right here in Tempe. And the reality 
of this. Uh, You know, the reality of this, I think, is that if you feel more at home with your political tribe than you do with the body of Christ, then you probably need to check where your allegiance is. I need to check your allegiance. Because there is increasingly today uh, what one uh, sociologist, a guy, James Mumford, has called package deal ethics. Where increasingly, uh, it's because of the polarization, it's like you're either with us on everything or you're out, right? And increasingly, if you disagree with anything, you're out. They may not throw you in the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they might online mob you or exclude you and mock you. Uh, on the left, Antifa might call you a bigot and mace you. And on the right, the alt-right might troll you and dox you. Right? So there's this extreme polarization. And one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, they've also done some recent studies that show uh, actually like the extremes on the left and right are about 6 to 8%. But the majority of folks find themselves in the middle and want actually a more uh, humanized conversation that's less polarized and vitriolic. I believe that's actually an area that we as the body of Christ can step into and model for our culture if we're faithful first to Jesus as king. All right, well, in our context, I think this increasingly poses the question of where's your allegiance? Where's your allegiance? Where's your allegiance? Put your hand over your heart and tell someone, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, we often think of that as a personal statement, but the reality is it is a political proclamation. It is saying that Jesus is king, ruler over the universe. Like that song we sang earlier, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's not ruler over another world. God has exalted him over, from heaven over the earth as the rightful king of this world. He is the president of presidents. Only different than in our democratic society, he's not looking for your vote, right? Jesus is not going, hey, if you get me into office, I'll bring back the vending machines and I'll get Bieber to come play at high school prom, you know? Like, (laughs) he's not looking for your vote. God has exalted him as king. And the nations are called, our country is called to bless God, to put him first, to orient our lives around him as king. And we talk about putting your faith in Christ Faith is allegiance. If you read the language of faith in the New Testament, some contexts, a lot of places, it it feels like the the best translation, like trust, um, uh, is like a trust or belief in. Uh, But there's some contexts where faith gets used in the New Testament in a sense of loyalty or allegiance to. As people who put our faith in Christ as Lord, it means that we put our loyalty, our allegiance under Christ as king of the earth, and we seek to order our lives both personally and collectively around the beauty of his reign. And he is a God who reigns over his people in self-sacrificial love, not through domination. And when loyalties conflict, um, it can be scary. When our loyalty to Jesus conflicts with our cultural moment, it can be scary. I, uh, you know, I, I feel like there is, my sense is there's a new national liturgy today. And I think of the crisis of the week, right? Like nationally, sort of, every week it feels like there's one more thing. And often, each side kind of polarizes and around its, its raises its flag and polarizes and kind of goes, hey, bow down to the flag. Voice your allegiance to our side, not the other. And it can be scary to not participate, like Shadrach, Commission and Abednego, or to maybe give a differing opinion with people who might disagree with you. Uh, But the beauty of the gospel is that we are not to be driven by fear, but by faith. 
I love this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love in verse 7 the word therefore, where it says, The king said, Hey, bow down to my image, bow down to the image, or I'm going to throw you in the fire. And it says, Therefore, the people bowed down, right? Like they were bowing not out of conviction, but out of fear of what Nebuchadnezzar said he would do to them otherwise. And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shine and they step forward as people who are not driven by fear, but by faith, by the courage of conviction. Stand boldly in the face of persecution. So we're invited not to be motivated by fear. And when I think about today for us, are you driven by fear or by faith? That we can be faithful even if it means we're thrown in the flames. A few kind of tips on this, I think. Just practical, getting practical here is uh, Thanksgiving's coming up soon. We're in November. And literally, I had friends last year going, uh, people I knew back home going, I'm, I can't go home for Thanksgiving just because of the way the conversation, I know the way it's going to be around the table, you know? Um, families struggling to know how to connect, interact, because the polarization has in, in, inflicted itself in our families. I think the question I throw out is, is in this is, is Jesus your hearing aid or your earplugs, right? Does he help you to hear the other person better or to stop your ears to their voice? I think one thing that we can do is be good question askers. Rather than just waiting to get our time to be able to go, what do you think? Or if someone wants to talk, to ask them, well, why do you think that? And like Shadrach, Meshach, and not be looking for a fight per se, you know, be looking to listen and understand and, and actually be marked by a different kind of presence in this conversation. Another uh, tip here, I think, love your neighbor with your vote. All right, this Tuesday, election's coming up. Wherever you land on the spectrum, we, we can debate about which policies and practices and leaders are, are, are going to be the best, but we don't get to divorce our faith from our politics, right? That actually we want to see the flourishing of our society, and we have convictions before God about whatever things are going to be the best to promote uh, a flourishing society and, and all. And so uh, love your neighbor with your vote. Don't divorce your faith from your politics. And also, don't be a sore loser, right? If your side loses, uh, don't pout and whine and whatever. Like, I love, I was thinking of the image of, like, you know, when, ki when your kids are playing sports, and at the end of the game, if they lost, like, you go, you shake the other team's hand, right? That we could actually, and, and if you win, don't gloat, right? <laughs> like, that actually, there's, there's a posture that is right there where we, we don't have to gloat if we win or pout if we lose, because ultimately our hope is not in our country getting this all figured out. Our hope is in the kingdom of God and him sorting this all out, right? And finally, I would say this, final tip, is don't let the national distract you from the local. Don't let the national distract you from the local. I think one of the concerns I have as a pastor and just a person is going, sometimes it feels like the, the volume of the national conversation uh, can become so uh, magnetizing and pull you towards it that we can lose an emphasis on actually living into what we believe right here in the local. And yet, my conviction is when I think of however many years I got left, the greatest kingdom witness that I'm probably going to have, I'm going to vote, I'm going to do those things, I may put my voice, but it's probably going to be less something that I post online or whatever, and it's going to be more how we live as a community here, as the body of Christ into the kingdom. That's how the early church transformed the world. That's how we can do it too. We can actually embody an alternative to be a people of the kingdom in the midst of the empire whose ultimate allegiance is to Christ, our king. And even if you get thrown in the flames, <laughs> we can be faithful in the fire to God 
because God is faithful in the fire to us. Close here reading the ending of the story. I love the ending here in verse 24 where they get thrown into the furnace. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Our faithful presence to God is motivated by God's faithful presence with us. Like we can live faithfully to God because he is faithful to us. Nebuchadnezzar the king, he thought, man, I'm sending him to meet their maker. And he was right, just not in the way he intended, right? Because <laughs> their maker had gone down with them into the flames. He was waiting there for them. And sometimes the very thing that you're afraid of is the very place that God wants to encounter you, that God wants to meet you and shape you and form you. We can live by faith and not by fear because our greatest encounters with the king is going to come in those places. Right? This is a picture of death and resurrection. Like they go down into the furnace, into the ground, into the flames, and yet God is with them in that grave. And he raises them up with him. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the faithful one, who before the empires of the world lived faithfully, his faithful presence to reconcile us. And he goes down into the grave. He goes down into Hades. And, and yet it ultimately has no power over him because he rises victorious to raise us with him from the grave. Our faithful presence in the fire. We can be faithful in the fire right? because Jesus has been faithful in the fire. You and I, we don't need to live by fear. We can live by faith. We can be faithful in the fire to Jesus because Jesus has been faithful in the fire to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. God, we bend our knee before you. We Put our hand on our heart, metaphorically, whatever, God, we pledge allegiance ultimately to you and your kingdom. God, we thank you for our, our country, for our families, for uh, wherever we might live in the world, God, we're here. You've placed us here, and we want to love our country, serve our country, honor our country uh, as, as the place and context where you've placed us. And yet, ultimately, God, our ultimate hope is you. And I pray, God, that if there are any ways, Holy Spirit, that the climate of our culture, God, has maybe caused some of us to, to elevate, whether it's our country or our vision or our country, over you, to have a more prominent place in our hearts and our lives in you. Jesus, I pray that you would gently or strongly this morning, however you want to do it, God, you would grab a hold of that idol and you would clutch it out of our hearts, God, and reorient us as a people whose ultimate allegiance is to you and your kingdom. God, I pray that in the midst of our polarized culture, that we could be faithful to one another and ultimately to you, God, and that we might, God, embody an alternative. That we would be a people where 
the way we communicate with one another is humanized. God, that we love our enemies rather than tear them down. Love those who disagree with us, God, rather than try and pull them apart. And Jesus, ultimately, God, that your kingdom that's coming would break in at even greater level, even here and now, would be a witness, God, to Tempe, to the Phoenix area, to our country, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords.